This is God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which, with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his his created created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Manhattan, one of the easiest ways to start a conversation with somebody you don't know or to maintain a conversation with somebody that you've just met is to ask, what do you do? That seems to be how we relate. That seems to be part of uh, at least professional Manhattan culture. Now, there's a number of reasons why why people do that. Um, First of all, among professionals, you spend so much time uh, at your career Uh, or at work, or in some cases, people have devoted so much time and energy to prepare for it, that that to to come up with a conversational question to allow people to talk about what they do, what they're interested in, it's often an easy question. What do you do? It, it, It allows us to have a conversation about somebody's life and get to know them. Now, there's a number of reasons why that may not be a good first question, but one reason especially in the culture of Manhattan, and I'm sure this is true in many places, is when it's asked in Manhattan, if you're at a social event and somebody asks, what do you do? 
sometimes as you're answering the question, it could feel as if the person is evaluating your answer um, tied to whether or not they want to continue the conversation or ever have a conversation with you after the fact. You know, there's this status sort of thing that, that what do you do actually has hope in a place like Manhattan. Maybe you do something that makes me want to know you or that I could benefit from or I can brag about. And um, if you want to get out of conversations at a party and somebody asks what you do, simply say, I'm a pastor. Uh, I have found that at public school gatherings that, that sometimes that leads to great conversations, but occasionally you find somebody saying, oh, that's great, that's good. Hold on, my, um, my husband is calling me. I'll be right back. Uh, so, so there's this weird thing about asking the question, what do you do, with hopes that it will elicit something but even our assumptions in asking the question or our desires in it, uh, where we're evaluating, is this person a worthy person worth talking to, shows that, that there's something, something a little bit wrong in our identity of who we are and how we connect who we are to what we do. Uh, something gets corrupted where, so for instance, boasting, that's in, ver in verse 9, talking about grace in, in, in Christianity it's important so that no one could boast because pride in boasting is, is harmful to being a person. And so we're supposed to be constituted so we, that we don't boast. And yet New York is a city where people want to be the greatest. And so a conversation, what do you do? You, know, you can answer that not about your career, but about your interests, your activities. But there's some evaluation. Uh, is what you do something that makes you somebody worthy to talk to? And that can make... New York City, a demoralizing place that actually, wherever you live, uh, could cause problems. Now, we're looking at a passage today, and, and actually we're focusing on the last verse, chapter 2, verse 10, about the call to do good works. Now, the, the word work here is about our deeds, our actions. It's not about our profession. So just because I'm, I'm, I'm using work as a tie-in, uh, that's not exactly, that's not the focus of the passage, but, but I'm focusing there today because we're in a sermon series where we're talking about love. And we've talked about these four relationships that, that we highlight in our church, God, self, others, and the world. And we've been applying love to each of those relationships in the last four weeks of the sermon series, this being the third, uh, next week being the last week in the, in the sermon series as a whole. We're talking about how does the love of God change how we engage the world? So two weeks ago, we looked at evangelism. It changes how we share a message. Last week, we looked a little bit about caring for the poor. That's part of how we engage the world. Uh, today, Today, how does the love of God change how we um, serve the world? Well, it has to do with our actions. And now the actions are not about our career, but because people spend a lot of time at work, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people either in a profession or doing some kind of work that's not paid work, it's worth saying, well, how is, how is God's love reconstituting me to engage the world in this way? And uh, clearly from, from this reading from Ephesians 2, where we read about God's grace, God's grace comes to us in mercy and love. And, and that's right there. And so how is the love that comes to us in God's grace making us people who are devoted, repurposed for good works? And so I want to talk about three things this morning, about the foundation for good works, the challenge of good works, that'll be second, and third, the possibility of good works. Uh, see, the Christian message is you don't do good things to earn God's favor in order to be saved, in order to, to make your way up a religious hierarchy. You begin with God's grace, his gift.
but that actually changes how we relate to the world. So we're going to begin with how that gives us a foundation for good works. That's what we need for our works to really be good, is to, to be on the right foundation. So that's where we'll begin. So, so what, what foundational do we get from, from chapter 2, verse 10? Well, the first phrase, for we are his workmanship. So, so the, 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 the organization of the, of the thinking here is first, before we've done anything, before we've worked, before we've earned, God gives. But once God gives, then we are set free to go and do. Um, so God himself is the foundation and, and our identity is God's workmanship. He is the original creator. We are the creation. And out of that, we become creators. He is the first worker. We become workers. And, and that's actually important for sustaining good work. I'm not talking about high-quality professional work, but I'm talking about being a person who's doing good with the whole of your lives. It's founded on that. We are God's workmanship. And so the Bible opens in Genesis 1 with the story of God as the creator. That communicates a number of things, but clearly it's also meant to establish not only his uniqueness, but, but then a pattern for us to follow. And for whatever reason, whoever it was that came up with the chapter and verses, I don't know why they ended uh, chapter 1 where they did and began chapter 2, verse 1 where they did, but, but the opening story ends in chapter 2, verse 3. The first three verses of chapter 2 in Genesis are quite important to the story of creation. It's not simply that we have a God that creates, but God creates all things good. In six days, he orders the chaos, but then on the seventh, he ceases for the enjoyment, the rest, the satisfaction. And, and, and that, by the commandments, the Ten Commandments, when they're given, is, is presented as an imitative pattern, that what God did in ordering the chaos, in making things good, and then in taking time to enjoy them becomes a pattern for us. So, so the foundation for our work in whatever form, whether it's our good actions or our career or our profession or our livelihood or our hobbies, there's a pattern of God, the creator, um, and the work that he does and our being God's workmanship. So foundationally, here's, here's, I'll just draw two things for us from this. One is to know that we are God's workmanship before we are God's workers. Who are you fundamentally? Well, you are somebody that's been given things to do, but your identity is not in what you have done. That's important to be clear. That's very clear in Ephesians. It's by grace you've been saved. Nobody should boast. We don't want to enter that paradigm, but we want to stay in the paradigm of grace where then uh, our identity is that we are God's workmanship. Why is that important? Because our value is in who we are in relation to God rather than in what we do for God which means you can do for God and fail. You can do for God and find you're not very good at doing, but you still have value because God is not evaluating you on what you produce for him, but your value is because you are his workmanship and his working to make you is so that you can share in the blessing of doing good. We get, we confuse that easily. And that's where it's important to remember we are his workmanship. You know, if, 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 um, if you saw two vases, and somebody who, who evaluates, uh, you know, the value uh, of them says, well, this one vase is worth $30,000 and the other one is worth $100. Okay, bo both of them are valuable, but you look at them, they're similar sizes, um, somewhat similar shapes, close enough in the kind of design, 
similar enough in materials. What is it that makes one worth a hundred and one worth $40,000? Now you might think the initial things, well, what is it made of? And, and that could be the answer, but if they look like they're made of the same thing, that can't be it. Is one more effective, maybe one day's leaks? <laughs> and it, it could have been worth 40,000? Well, it's probably not in its function. And while, while there could be a number of things that could talk about the difference of value, I think a first good guess is to ask, well, who made the $40,000 vase? That would be part of it. Not simply, does it look better than the other one? Well, does it look you know, $39,900 better than the other one? You know, that's hard to evaluate. But who made it, actually, uh, when we think of creativity in, in our culture, we think that the, the, the one who created then the creation takes on a certain value in its connection. Uh, whether or not that's how we should value things on earth, I don't know, but the Bible seems to recognize that's how value is done and sends a message to us. For we are God's workmanship. So before we produce, before we think, am I a vase that, that holds water better or shows flowers better, remember that our value is in the one who produced us um, more than what we produce. That's important for being able to continue to not get discouraged that we're not good enough. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, but secondly, there's the imitative foundation, which is that, that God orders chaos. He makes things good. And, and that's part of our work. And, and here's two traps. One is our own pride. So that's verse nine. Makes clear that, that the ultimate work in this world is God's work so that nobody could boast. Because taking away boasting is actually God's kindness to us. It's the desire to boast that undermines the goodness of our good works and therefore the satisfaction and joy we have and, and the longevity of doing good when it's hard. So um, one example of how boasting affects things is in our pride, sometimes we can't, we can't see how the value of our work as one piece of a larger whole is valuable. And this is where everyone's wanting to go their own way as the influencer, as the world changer. And, you know, if something needs to be done, it's valuable. And so the world changing company, if somebody needs to, to vacuum the carpets and deliver food and change light bulbs, the people who do those things are people of God, they're God's workmanship and they're contributing to the mission of, of the organization. And I suspect most of us would want to affirm that because we believe in the dignity of all people. And I would hope the value of any honest work. But in our own pride, there's something that says, I know that that person's work is valuable, but my work for whatever reason doesn't feel valuable because there's all these people around me doing these wonderful, great things. And at least one component of that is our pride. Grace is meant to take away the pride to say your value is in, in who you are as workmanship. And now you are to do valuable work. This is not saying don't bother doing anything, it doesn't matter but it's saying don't do it in pride. And here's a second trap that sometimes our work is so career focused. You know, these days the ideal that we're aiming for, which I think is a good ideal, is, is how do we overlap our natural gifts, desires, and interests with our careers and professions? And to the degree that we can make that happen, that's good. Why? It's as simple as if you're gonna spend so many hours a week devoted to doing something, it would be great to be enjoying it, or to feel good about it, or to have some conviction about it. The problem is so many things could go wrong is you, can, you may think a certain career is good, and then you go to college, and then you go to some graduate program, and then at 28 or 30, you realize, I just hate doing it. But you, you don't want to give up because of that. Or you may find there's a certain career you want to do, and you have some of the gifts, but most, 
if a job is hard and involves a lot of things, maybe uh, it, it involves 50 things and you've got 10 of them very strong, but you're just, you know, you're never going to have that career. And then some of you really have gifts and affinities and highly competitive things, something like the arts. You know, lots of people want to be famous singers, um, but can everybody sustain a career doing it? And so we wind up having this ideal that we need to merge our career with our interests and gifts. And I want to encourage you, strive for that. But our identity is not meant to be in what we do and what we produce, which means um, there are lots of options for you to continue to develop skills, even if you have to do two jobs. When, when I was a teenager, I had this friend who was a bit of a wise guy. And whenever we were somewhere at a party or something, and people, and we'd ask what, we, what somebody did, if somebody said, I'm an actor, he would always say, what restaurant do you work at? And that was him being a bit of a wise guy. But the assumption, which is not very kind, is that you know, making it as an actor is such a hard thing in the, in the city. And so, so you're doing what you love, what you're good at, and what you're passionate about. But there's got to be some other way of paying the bills. And for a lot of us, that's what we have to do, but it affects our work in problematic ways. And so here are two of the problems. One is the slavish, my identity is so bound up in the work that unless I'm advancing in my career, I'm nobody. That's a terrible foundation. Remember, you are God's workmanship and do everything with skill and excellence. The other problem is to create this dual identity where, my, where my, my identity is not in my work and therefore I don't care about my work. I'm here for a paycheck and I'm showing up doing the bare minimum. And, and there's a lack of goodness in that. And so sometimes you have to take a job simply because it pays the bills, but, but if it's work, it's good work. And so how do you not get trapped into to having so much tied to your identity that either you feel like a slave because you're failing and you as a human are a failure, or you're excelling in something, but, but most of what you spend your time doing, you don't care about. This idea of being God's workmanship, of imitating God, of doing all things with enthusiasm to be creative and to want good um, is something that, that can change how we do things. And I want to encourage that. So, uh, so we are God's workmanship. One of the ways that, that being loved by God changes how we relate to the world is it takes pride away and says, but still go do good, go and do good anyway. So, so here's, here's a second thing I want to talk about, which is the challenge of good works. And so uh, here we are told, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And there should be something exciting about but the trick is in doing it. So you read Genesis 1 and 2, and there's God and his power and his might. He simply speaks, and things come into being. And, and there he is. There's the chaos, and he orders it, and it's good. And then you read Genesis 3, where, where there's this terrible event with Adam and Eve and this serpent, where there's deception and betrayal, and then we're told that there are curses pronounced on the created order, on the people, and on the on the work within creation itself. And so it seems a little bit unfair to read about God, who's utterly unique in his power and his might and his goodness, being, being one who simply speaks things into being and we're told now, go and do what God does. And yet we're not God. We don't have his power, wisdom, and authority. And we, we'll live in this chaotic world that doesn't seem to make it easy to do good. And so the challenge of good works is, is good is hard. <laughs> And therefore, we easily give up. And so if you, if you read through, I won't spend time talking about chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, but this picture of the human condition, our corrupted desires, and how that leads us astray creates a context 
that life in this world, whatever it is, whether it's simply a moral good deed or whether it's some productive action that you want to devote yourself to, in Genesis 3, well, well you know, the, the, the tasks of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, well, the, the multiplying part of it is now painful as there's a curse, not simply in childbearing as though, you know, it's just in that, in those, those you know, two to 12 hours of labor that it's painful, but, but everything about raising children is hard. And, and uh, being fruitful and making the world fruitful, but now there are thorns. And so it's by the sweat of your brow that you earn your bread. And so every aspect of doing good, whether it's being kind to a person or advancing in a career, the task of ordering chaos so that the result will be good is a bit of a fight. And so the inspiring message, think of all the good you can do, wears off as you go out and try to do it. You try to love people who are harmful, toxic people, and then you just want to stop loving all people. You try to do a job, and then, and then your job, which is not based in technology, but depends on technology, and you're not a tech person to be able to solve the problems of all of the technology that are enabling or making it so you can't do your job. And it's just, that's life in this world, frustration. And, and, and the challenge is to, to stay the course, to continue doing good, not to get so discouraged, so overwhelmed, so cynical that you get caught up in it. So, so we get defeated. Here, here are three quick ways we get defeated. One, we get, we get pulled into doing evil. You know, it's, just, it's hard to play by the good rules. And, and it seems that when you cut corners, it's more effective. And so if you can't beat them, you join them. You know, why be a loser and, and, and keep doing good and hating doing good and having it be ineffective? Uh, why not just be at an internet cafe and send emails to older people and, and say that if you give, you know, that you want to give them a tax refund uh, and that if they send their bank information, you'll, you'll give them the money and then just take their money. Isn't that, isn't that easier to do? Uh, well, that's a temptation. It's, it, it may appear easy, but it never is. It's not good. And therefore you will, you will never experience goodness on that. But in the short term, when you're not experiencing goodness, doing it the right way, that becomes a real temptation. Um, a more likely temptation is simply the exhaustion. You get tired of going back to doing your work and trying to do it good, trying to order the chaos, trying to fight the good fight. And when you get exhausted, you just give up and you give up one little thing at a time. You know what? At this point, I'm not going to quit my job and I'm just going to stop doing that. At this point, I'm not going to quit hanging out with my friends, but I'm just going to stop proactively calling them. But, but in our exhaustion, before you know it, we've untangled ourselves and we're, 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 we're not ordering chaos, but chaos is overcoming us. It, it could be a process that happens over time. Uh, and then here's just a final example of how we get defeated. Uh, the hard things and the important things are discouraging enough that we, we just go to what's not hard and what's easier. And over the big picture, we find that we've just done a lot of things that weren't as hard, but also weren't important. And so, so staying the course and doing the good hard work, is, it's, it's actually really hard. And so devoting ourselves to doing good becomes discouraging because it's too hard. But given the nature of our hearts that Ephesians 2 has in view, uh, it's also hard because our desire to do good actually shows us that not only is the world not incentivized, but it pushes back. But our response to the world pushing back shows that we are not only is the world not good, but we ourselves are not good. And that's awfully discouraging when, when you feel like there's something exciting about God has, has given me a new chance and God has made me good and I could go out into the world and do good things. And not only is the world not working with you, but you see your own twisted motivations and it becomes discouraging. How can a person like me do good works? 
because it feels hypocritical. There's this good thing I want to do, but, but not only am I not able, not only am I not talented, but I'm not, I'm not good. And so we get defeated. And that's why Ephesians 2 is so essential. That's why this message of grace is so essential. Because we, 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 from that perspective, read the Bible with a little bit of resentment. We look at God in Genesis 1 or 2, the creator of the universe, the eternal one with the power to speak, ordering the chaos, and we think all that's good for you, but we are cursed people in a cursed world with our sinful hearts and our sinful world, and you've given us this terrible task of trying to do good. And how are we supposed to do that with joy when, when, when things look so easy for you, and then you place us in this garden where it looked easy, the Garden of Eden, and yet you cast us out of the garden. And here we are in this world. And it's easy to start to become self-pitying, and that's part of the narrative that we pick up on when, when we're trying to do good and we're failing, when we think we are good and want to do it and we learn we're not. Rather than seeing God's goodness as the model of what excites us and where we get our value, we, restart, we start to resent goodness in any form. Either we hate God because God is what we want to be and we're not, or we fear God because we know we're not. There's other options. But Ephesians talks about grace of saying God did place us in a garden that we would do good. And because we're not good, we have to leave. And now we're in this world that it's hard to produce fruit. But before we resent God, we remember that God is not simply the one who made all things good, but God is the redeemer who himself came into the world. And Jesus Christ comes as the one who came to do the work, the will of the Father. And Jesus himself before he was crucified, was placed in a garden, this garden with Gethsemane. And this is a garden where, where everything is failing. His, his friends are falling asleep and they're not with him. Relationships are breaking down. It says he prays with such intensity, knowing what he's going to face, that, that sweat like drops of blood comes out of his forehead. So here's Adam being cursed by the sweat of your brow, you will earn your bread. And now the work of Christ in going to the cross overwhelms him with grief that a sweat uh, so deep and profound uh, showing the, the bearing of the curse of work in this world. Before we say that God knows nothing about us and the challenge of being good and trying to do good in this world, remember that what Christianity offers is not a God who's perfect and outside of this world and calls us as imperfect people to do what only God can do. But what we have is God who demonstrates even deeper his goodness and perfection by coming into this world. And Jesus going into that garden had a, ch a chance to, to leave or to remain and be subject to the corruptions of this world as one of his own disciples came to betray him, Judas, and as he was handed over to the cross. And the Christian story is Jesus was faithful to the work, even though it was hard, even though it was costly, but he did it in grace because of his mercy and because of his love for us, because we are his workmanship. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, God, unlike us, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's not that we were struggling. It's not that our work was failing. It's not that we were not good enough. We were dead. We were just not good. We were, we were not doing anything of value. God being rich in mercy loved us when we were in that position. What does this say about God? Well, what does it also say about this salvation that's offered to us? And, 
in chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, we want to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ. And this is where we see the creative work of God, that he, he did all things by the spirit that hovers over creation through Christ in Genesis 1. But it's that work that he worked in Christ that really is the work that shows us the richness of his mercy and love. And that's why in 2.10, when we're created, when we are God's workmanship, we are created not just out of God's love and mercy, but we're created in Christ Jesus. And that's because Jesus comes to do a restorative, recreative work. So the parallel in chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead, chapter 2, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. Jesus is the one who was good. He was the one who did the impossible work. He is the one that faced the chaos, and he is the one who came out of it with order. And there's this small interesting detail. When you read John's account of the resurrection, the other side of the one who finished the work on our behalf, the first person who sees him is Mary, who, who comes to the tomb, and she encounters these angels, and it's this confusing thing, and then Jesus appears to her. And it's interesting, there's this odd little note, you could read this in John, where Mary, before she hears the voice of Jesus and recognizes him, it says she thinks he's the gardener. I don't know why John records that, but John begins the gospel saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a sense in which the one who did the work in the garden of Gethsemane now is the one who does the fruitful work, who who uh, does what Adam failed to do, who brings humanity back into the paradise of God and makes it possible that we as his workmanship in Christ can devote ourselves to good works. And something that's interested me over the years um, is, is how in the, the, the lumber industry, what a weird thing, I'm not interested in the lumber industry, but, uh, but with wood, it's something that I've noticed as an observation. Um, you know, it used to be that, that a farmer in the middle of nowhere that had a barn and it was falling down because it was made 150 years ago, would tear it down and then just, you know, all winter long, use the wood to, to, to fire his, uh, to heat his home in the fire, whatever the case is. Uh, when developers wanted to tear down buildings, they would just take the materials, get rid of them. And then somebody realized that, that some of this wood could, wood could be repurposed. And, and the benefit of repurposing wood is, has so many points of contact of why it would make sense. So first of all, if, if we have a, a looming environmental crisis through deforestation, wouldn't it be good to, to take the, the wood we already have rather than tearing down more? Um, but, but it wasn't just that. It's sort of like, well, well, we could create forests and we could chop down trees. But when you're creating an industry and you cut down trees and you have wood when it's young wood, it, it doesn't have the maturity, and so it works for furniture, but as it dries, it changes, and it doesn't have the aesthetic beauty. And all of a sudden, you realize this, this wood uh, from an old tree chopped down 150 years ago is actually a better option. So the trend of reclaimed wood in furnishings, for example, where all along it was like, well, that's old and beat up, and I like what's new, that the people's aesthetic changed when they realized well, there's a number of valuable reasons why we would want this, it changed so much that now people who are trying to create cheap furniture are trying to make it look like reclaimed wood. What a, 
What a strange thing. Uh, we're going to create new wood to make it look reclaimed. And that's kind of the, 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 the world that we live in. But there's something about that reclaimed wood that, that it has a strength that new wood doesn't have. It has a maturity. And there's an aesthetic in terms of a richness of, of colors in a life that, that you can't get simply by artificial procedures or by having a wood-looking tile. And there's a story to say that, you know, this, this uh, chest that I have that I put my clothes in was actually the floor of a bowling alley. There's something that, that, that ties us in this ever-changing world where, where there's, there's nothing enduring. For us to have a piece of furniture that says there's a story and there's history and there's strength and there's maturity makes sense in a world that now, having cast God aside... And being so advanced that the second we, are, we start using something, we're ready to throw it out. To say, well, well, how does human identity, how is it any different? And the story of Christianity is God made us good, but, but, but we became corrupted. We are not good. And so what should we be, what would, should God do? He should throw us into the fire to, to warm his own home. And yet that's not what he does. We are his workmanship. And so, so he comes to reclaim us. That's, that's the message of Jesus. It's, it's not because we were doing anything useful. It's because of the value that we are his. And he, he came because we are his. And we are his workmanship now created in Christ Jesus. And so that value isn't diminished by our failure to continue to do good or because of the flaws that's in us, the, the holes of where the nails used to be and the cracks from whatever pressure was on us. But God is, is remaking us so that the beauty of the Christian witness is not fake, pristine people who look like they've been reclaimed, but actual people that God have made that he's making new. And that's, and that's a story that, that we need, because it's a real story about a real God for real people in this real world. And that's where Jesus says, don't get caught up in philosophy and hypocrisy and false religion, but join yourself with the God who loved you, he showed grace and mercy, and he has repurposed you so here's the last thing I want to talk about. How do we relate to the world with a new possibility? So the third thing is the possibility of good works. So God has chosen not to cast us aside, but to pursue us and to reclaim us and to remake us. And he's left us in a world that he has not yet cast aside either. And so the original purpose that we would be like God in the world, doing his kinds of things, there's a possibility that we can do this again. That being made new, having been loved, having been people who have received grace and mercy, we can take the love of God and, and devote ourselves once again to good works so that rather than giving up on this corrupt world, we would behave as God in the world. And it creates a new possibility, which is why in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, the gospel is, is a gift. And it says the gift of God is not a result of works. And so... So Paul is not saying works don't matter. He's saying works will never earn you favor with God. You will never do enough moral things to be right with him. So then we say, well, then why bother doing work? And, and, and we do one of two things. One is we say, well, I'm going to keep doing good works because I don't know if I fully believe it. So I, I hold to a theology of grace, but I'm still going to work just in case. And then we feel like we're on a treadmill. Or we say, what a relief. I was so tired of doing these good things that I'm glad for grace. I'm never going to do anything good again and just enjoy the forgiveness. And there's something to be said about missing the power of the message 
that God in his goodness came and he showed grace and mercy, the gift of God's love. Salvation is not a result of works. We need to keep that very clear. But works are a result of salvation. If salvation is good, the things that we can do out of that are the very things that bring us joy. And so if you're working for God slavishly, or if you're not working for God cold-heartedly, you're missing out on something very good in the good news. And it's not that now you have to do things to earn God's favor so that God will be pleased, but it's not having to do anything. When you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive in Christ. If you know that God is good, aiming to be like God and with God in the world is good. So why do good works? Not because of what they'll do for you and your pride, not because of what they'll do for you and your plan of salvation, but because the works are good, because God is good. And so verse 10 says, uh, in contrast, the gift of God is not a result of works, but, but we are God's workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works. Works are the result of the gift of God in our lives. And so it's not that now we have to earn our keep, but now we have the joy of being oriented differently to the world. And this is really what we need when it comes to either your theology of work and your career, or as you try to piece together, what am I doing in my absence of, of being employed? Or what am I doing with a job that I'm not good at or don't like, but I have interests that I'll never be paid for? Or what am I doing in the monotony of work that's, that's not thanked, but is important? How many diapers do you have to change before somebody says, that's amazing, you changed another diaper. And yet in that monotonous work, it's good, even if the world won't reward and thank you for it, is the reward in the doing. And that's where grace changes us. When you, when you recognize there's something about doing what God does, facing chaos, it's not going to be easy, but devoting the, the persevering hard work and energy so at the end you can rest and say it's finished and receive satisfaction in that. And some work in this world is never finished. But the redemptive work of God is. So we can always rely on the, the cry of Jesus when he says it is finished, when we ourselves feel like we're never going to finish our work. But here's an example of how it changes things. I'm somebody who enjoys eating, but there's a bit of a guilt that I have because I don't necessarily enjoy the process of cooking. Uh, I'm fortunate to have around me at least one person, if not uh, a couple, and to live in a city where there's lots of people who will, will do good work. I tend to think a little bit too, too details on efficiency, uh, which becomes a problem. And so it, 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 when you think about a good meal, I sometimes find I so enjoy it that it went quickly that the 15 or 20 minutes it took me to eat the meal, I then go back and calculate, you know, if you could create your value in dollar per hour and you think about how many hours you worked to, to, to pay for the meal, and then you think about how much prep was needed in terms of the time that, that you're not rewarded for in terms of shopping, preparing, cooking, and then, you know, here's the work of creating order out of chaos. So you have all these, these separate elements that the work, the, the, the worker, pulls together in wisdom to take the, 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 the herbs and the spices and the ingredients and the heat and these all dynamics and, and does this creative work to make something that at the end is good. The second you've eat it, eaten it, you've, you're aware of more chaos. <laughs> so now there's, there's the work of cleaning the dishes and the pots and pans. And I find myself 15 minutes after, eaten, after I've eaten saying, you know, the food was good but I think I'd rather just not eat and, and take my six hours back. 
But you know, that, that orients you to the world where then you're always doing the productive thing and never enjoying. And so, so here are two things that are produced for those who, who do the work of preparing the food. One is a lot of people cook because they enjoy the food themselves. So if you really want to eat well, make the food you like. So one level is you sit down and you enjoy it. And that's satisfying. That's that seventh day principle. I spend six days kind of working and, and now I enjoy it. But, but, but given love, there's also a joy that comes from seeing others enjoy it. And so why spend all that time and effort and resources cooking? Well, well the gift that you give to another is hard to then calculate when somebody who didn't work for it receives it. And so you get to enjoy it and the person gets to enjoy it. And so, so I get challenged thinking, I, I think the process of making food seems worth it. I might, might lean towards pasta and a jar of sauce as delicious rather than sous vide a, a, a steak over, over 12 hours. Uh, but for the person that wants to put in the time and energy, there's the joy of having, the joy of seeing. But there's one thing I've observed that doesn't happen when you only think of the, in the efficiency paradigm. And it's when you sit back and you look at a table of people that just have shared in a meal and the person who made it enjoyed the, the taste and the person who ate enjoyed the taste. But when you do something good, when you gather people to give them something good, you find that other good things happen. That beyond the 20 minutes of tasting food, there's sometimes two or three hours of meaningful conversation and relationship. And that you can't quite put your, your money to. And, and so there's something about going into the world thinking, what am I going to get out of this? Am I reaping a reward? And there's a paradigm shift that says, if God is generous and, and, and you are his workmanship, if you devote yourself to doing good, as you do it, you find that, that goodness has its own reward because of the multiplication. And so fighting the chaos is saying, rather than getting caught up in our exhaustion, giving in and letting the world overwhelm us and one another, taking the grace of God and saying, because it's good, I don't need to earn anything. I don't need to be thanked. I don't, I don't need to prove anything. But I believe, because God is good, that living as God is in the world brings its own reward. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push through the discouragement. I'm going to push through the frustration. I'm going to fight to do good. Why? Because at the end, I'll get a reward from God? No, because God is a God who rewards you at the beginning. And then he says, with this gift, he's created you. You are his workmanship. In Christ Jesus, the blessing is in the good works. <laughs> it's in the being like God and knowing God. And so you don't have to do good works to earn your salvation. It would be strange if you've been given salvation that you would not eagerly devote yourself to good works. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we live in a world that where we are corrupt and the world is corrupt and your ways don't make sense. And so we think doing evil is good. We think avoiding what is good is beneficial. And we find ourselves feeling without meaning, without purpose, frustrated, resentful, hating others. So much of this ties back to the fact that we, we know we're not good. We're tired of trying to be a force for good. And we don't know you and your grace to the depth that we should. And so, Lord, do a spiritual working in our hearts and minds to open our eyes to see that your love changes who we are in the world because we are your workmanship. And it creates the possibility that our lives could be meaningful. We don't need to earn our keep in this world, but, but we could have the joy and delight 
of knowing you and, and doing your ways. So forgive us for not doing it and empower us to do it. Help us to look this week for those good things we can do and let us do them when they're hard, but let us do them with joy and thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.